about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Reading comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, and it's on page 1039 on the Bibles in your pew. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Hi guys, I'm Cameron. The second reading is from 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 9, 19 to 23, and then 10, 21, uh, 31 to 11, 1. It's on page 11, 34. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us, bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, this evening, um, we're going to lay it on the line. Uh, We're going to come face to face with a simple and straightforward command of Scripture. Will it be heard and lead to appropriate repentance? Will it affect you personally? Will it be allowed to affect this church and its leadership and finances and ministry? 
or will it be politely ignored? The command is from the Apostle Paul. It's found at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The reader is to follow the example of the apostle who follows the example of Christ. But in what way? How does Paul imitate Christ so that we are to imitate him in his imitation? Pull back a bit and put the command in its context from verse 31. And you'll see now how unfortunate is the chapter division at this point in the middle of what we would call a paragraph. So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. Before we unpack this, let's... Let me give you a little background, might be important. The reference, whether you eat or drink, is there because Paul is coming to the conclusion of a long and, in fact, involved discussion of a problem that faced his readers, the Christian believers, in the Greek city of Corinth. Big city at what? Big port city. They'd become believers in Jesus Christ as Lord in a world of polytheism. That is, in a world, as Paul wrote earlier, of God's many and Lord's many. But for the Corinthian believers, that had all changed, as Paul writes also in that earlier section. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Now the problem was how to continue living in a community so enmeshed in the worship of many gods that were not gods, in fact, they were mere idols and worse. The issue became particularly acute at all things dinner parties. In the ancient ancient Greek world, virtually all the meat sold in the marketplace had been dedicated to a pagan deity. The animal was slaughtered, prayed over by priests, then symbolically presented to a god in a temple, then taken down to the marketplace and sold. From the Greek point of view, this made their food blessed. But from the Christian point of view and also the Jewish point of view, there were Jews in every city, It made it tainted, cursed even. It was demon meat. Now, you might be able to buy untainted meat in the marketplace if there was a Jewish community in your city. But what to do when you're invited by a pagan friend or business associate to their place or to a restaurant for dinner? To make things worse, the restaurants were usually attached, apparently, to the temple of some god or other. What do you do? Do you keep yourself pure, but cut off? 
Or do you eat with them and be tainted or worse? Well, in a subtle and nuanced discussion, running from chapter 8 all the way to the end of chapter 10, 11 verse 1 actually, Paul gives neither a simple yes or no answer. But after drawing strong boundaries, he urges Christian flexibility out of concern for others. At the very end, he summarizes his argument in the paragraph I've just read. So, whether you eat or drink, in other words, whether you go or don't go to these parties, or whatever you do, he says, do all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, neither Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now here in Newtown, we are a long, long way from facing the particular issues faced by believers in the first century Greek Corinth. Although you could argue we still live in a polytheistic world. It's atheistic at one level, but polytheistic in that many people still have many gods they live for. They may not call them gods. But that which gives their life meaning, focus and being, there are many of those, there are many gods, many and lords, many in our culture. Nonetheless, the particular situation is a very long way from us. And yet, and yet I think that, I'm convinced actually, that the principles that the apostle presented to them could not be more relevant to us here and now. And I, need, I think we need to hear the word the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the words of the Apostle and calling us to take them very seriously. So let's look at what Paul said at the end of chapter 10. Now there are two parts, in what, in, in two main points I think. One, whatever you, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And the second part, starting at verse 32, do not cause anyone to stumble but follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. We'll take each in turn. Firstly, whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now this is a call for a profound refocus of each of our lives. Amidst all the duties, joys, responsibilities, and pleasures, and frustrations that make up our daily lives, this motive must play a crucial role. Will what I do also bring glory to the living God? That is, and here I want to speak to those amongst us this evening who are Christian believers, that is, who have already come to that place in their life, where they've entrusted their lives to God through Jesus Christ. Will my social behaviour in the community among friends, at work, on the bus, or the train, or perhaps even driving along, in the shops, will my social behaviour promote the reputation of the one true God whom I serve and call as Father or not? That's the question. Whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. It's easy, I think, to think of negative examples Am I the only one who cringes when, for example, some prominent public figure, known to be an active Christian, 
gains a reputation nonetheless for being an egotist who treats people appallingly were this to be the case. Those disjunctions ring very loud. Instead, the command is, whatever you do, do do everything for the glory of God. That is, live to enhance God's reputation. Do not damage it. Now, this is not to be taken as an impossible ideal. You see, I know how we deal with this sort of stuff, right? We say, oh, that seems all for the glory. Oh, it's too big. Everything for the glory. I can't possibly do that. So we, we get off Protestant perfectionism, I call it. We feel guilty. Oh, I feel so guilty. I can't do it. But I'm saved by grace. Whew. Now, that's free. I can forget about it now. That's not meant to be an impossible idea to make you feel guilty, so you forget about it. This is meant to be a practical guide. Paul's giving him practical advice how to deal with a complex world of how to negotiate whether you go to dinner or not go to dinner and what circumstances the Corinthians were facing in their own social world. As you have complicated issues in your social world of what you will and will not do as you, like the Corinthians, live in a pagan society. And one of the rules is, whatever you do, whether you're going to do this or don't do that, whatever you do, do it so that God's make a keep. Will God's reputation be enhanced or damaged by what I'm going to do? That's the rule. It's a very helpful practical guide. Or if I put it another way, if you must be a Christian, don't be a jerk. Okay? I think it's good advice from the apostle. You must be a Christian. Don't, at least don't be a jerk. Okay? This is my rule for you tomorrow. That's the first part of Paul's advice. The second is this. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, he says... For I'm not seeking my own good, but that of many that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That is, don't give needless offence to any class of people, but imitate me as I imitate Christ in seeking to please people in what I do. Not offend them, not cause them to stumble. Now, of course, when you think about it, there are many different reasons you might have to seek to please everyone in what you do. One reason you might seek to please everyone in what you do is that you are frankly afraid of conflict. And that's a nice way to keep your head down by pleasing everybody. Because you're afraid. Or it might be you do it because you wish to be thought well of. And so you please everyone in what you do. It might be you're trying to sell them something. So you please them everything you do but that's not what's commanded here that kind of pleasing others is not following the example of Christ now the trying to please everyone that Paul expects is that which he says not seeking my own advantage all those other pleasings were to seek my own advantage but the pleasing that Paul wants is not to seek your own advantage but that of many, that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now Paul, Paul put that in, in, into practice in quite a remarkable way, vividly described in the earlier part of the reading, 1 Corinthians in chapter 9. 
Paul was incredibly flexible how he behaved according to the different cultural and religious groups he was engaged in in his apostolic evangelistic ministry. Today, the phrase, all things to all men, indicates weakness, lack of integrity. When someone says, you're all things to all men, they're not praising you. But in fact, for Paul, who coined the phrase, it's an expression that captures a conscious effort to let as little as possible stand in the way of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To meet people halfway, no, three quarters way if you could, that they may know Christ through his ministry. And it was to win people of all different kinds, the Jew, those under the law, another way of describing Jews, perhaps the devout Jew, those outside the law, that is the, the polytheists, the Gentiles, those also who are overly scrupulous Christians whom Paul calls the weak. And so he describes in chapter 9 his policy of not pleasing, of sorry, pleasing others that they may be saved. I quote, he says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Because the irony is Paul was a Jew, never stopped being a Jew. But he, uh, he, uh, he no longer kept kosher he no longer ate kosher food. He, uh, he may have broken Sabbat. He may have not kept it. He did all things to... But, but for them, no, when he was amongst the Jewish, he became observant again. And you see it in the Acts of the Apostles. He even took a vow and offered a sacrifice in the temple. To those under the law, he says, I become like one under the law, though myself am not under the law. The law here means Torah, the law of Moses, not the, the law of the land. Those who were devout, observant keepers of Torah, as Paul was, he was a fanatic before he turned to Christ, stayed being a fanatic, just changed direction. Um, he practiced devout observance. On the other hand, to those not having the law, the, uh, the lawless Gentiles who ate defiled food and didn't keep the Sabbath and all this stuff, no, he said, to those outside the law, I became like one not having the law. He, he became like a Gentile. Well, they make it very clear, he wasn't lawless, though I am not free from God's law, but under the law of Christ. He's still obliged to obey God, but no longer through Torah, but he can now act like a Gentile. To the weak, he says, I became weak. Amongst the scrupulous, anxious Christians, he actually compensated for them. Didn't just say, suck it up, princess. He looked after them. I become, he says, all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share its blessings. I said this morning, uh, this, Paul, it was lucky Paul didn't have Facebook, actually. Because this depended upon the Jew not knowing that he didn't keep Sabbath and the Gentile not knowing he was all. In other words, it required Paul to kind of wherever he was, to adapt. And in fact, it did come to grief because you read the Acts of the Apostles, he got into big trouble back in Jerusalem by some extremely devout, fanatical Jews who thought he'd defiled the temple by bringing in pagans. He hadn't actually done that, but it shows the danger of Paul's practice of not pleasing himself, but pleasing others that they may be saved in a world of conflict. Now, that's not just Paul. Paul living that way of life accommodating himself to others for their salvation is imitating Christ. 
See, he is the one, as we saw in the first reading, who came to seek out and save the lost. He came not seeking his own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. That's the life of Christ summarised. The creed says it all. For us humans and our salvation, he came, for us humans and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became fully human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again the third day. He was not seeking his own advantage. He came not to be served, but to serve. But that of the many that they may be saved. And that's not just incidental. It's the very core of Christ's being in ministry. And therefore, ladies and gentlemen, this is the simple and straightforward command of Scripture I said at the beginning we'd face this evening. We hear the Apostle tell us, whatever we do, do it for the glory of God. Practical guide to our life. We hear him tell us, as he tries to please everyone in every way, not seeking his own good, but the good of many that they may be saved, imitate him as he imitates Christ. Follow his example. That's the command. To us today, to make that very seriously, the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the scriptures. Will we follow Paul's example as Paul follows Christ's example of giving ourselves to the reputation of God and the salvation of many? Or putting it this way, is the glory of God and the salvation of many any priority in your life? Paul didn't just mean by many salvation of those outside. He meant that also, but also not to ruin the faith of those within the community. That was all part of his concern. Can I put this respectfully to here at St. Stephen's and the associated ministries? Is this a priority of this church? Notice that Paul is not here asking, do we have a specialist adjunct to normal life called mission or evangelism on the side? No, he's talking about a life, an outlook on life that cares deeply for God's reputation in the wider community and for the salvation of others. That's the question for you tonight. Now, there are three reasons why you may not really obey this simple and straightforward command of Scripture. Let me go through them quickly with you. You may be afraid, you may be unconvinced, or it could be something worse. You may be afraid because you may think that saying yes to this command is saying yes to becoming some kind of a cringeworthy evangelist. Someone presumptuous and arrogant and buttonholing people endlessly to their embarrassment. Or that by saying yes, you're saying yes to something you know you can never be. Not to worry, that's not what Paul is commanding. In fact, it's not even a commandment for every one of us to become evangelists even if that's what Paul was in spades. Evangelism is the explicit proclamation of the gospel, which is crucial. But Paul is not here calling every person, regardless of their gifts and circumstances, to be committed proclaimers of the gospel. What he's doing is commanding every believer, in imitating him as he imitates Christ, to be a committed to the promotion of the gospel, a committed promoter of the gospel, seeking to please others that they may be saved. A promoter of the gospel is someone who has the glory of God and the salvation of many as a priority in her life, in his life, and lives like that, whatever their gifts and circumstance. 
That's what Paul's calling us to. By the way, I got that, that neat distinction between being a proclaimer of the gospel and a promoter from the gospel. It's too good to come from me, as you know that, realize. It comes from a, a book, um, uh, Promoting the Gospel of Vandalism Proper, so proclaiming the gospel, promoting the gospel, every and other activity that draws people to Christ, including drawing them to come and hear evangelists, if you're not one yourself. From a book by my friend, Dr. John Dixon, excellent book called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, Promoting the Gospel with More Than Our Lips, Zondervan 2010. It's available in ebook as well as in old-fashioned print. I recommend it thoroughly. And in that book, John, developing his doctoral thesis for his for New Testament, identifies all the ways that we, like the early Christians, can promote the gospel. I think he got seven in our praying, in our allocation of money, in the good works the church does as a community, in our personal Christian behaviour, in the praise of God, in our church come and hear God's name being exalted, in the apt reply a believer will give when questioned about their faith, as well as by those who by gifting or calling are evangelists proper. Now there's no need to be afraid that obeying this command will make you something you are not. You are called to be a promoter of the gospel with who you are. Second thing you might say, why you may not want to obey this command is because you are unconvinced. Unconvinced that this is a necessary or even good thing to do. Now this evening is not the time to treat this issue any length. There are two kinds of unconvinced. There's the unconvinced of someone who is still seeking and not yet found and still exploring Christ and not yet at a stage where they have any convictions on this matter. They're still exploring. And if you are here this evening in that category, let me say how delighted I am that you've joined us and a part of us and I hope that tonight's and other activities will, will, will continue in your journey and search for what, what I believe is finding life itself. There's another kind of unconvinced. If you've been a Christian for some time, however, but you're still unconvinced of the importance of this, serving others that they may be saved. In that case, I recommend if you are not convinced, then you ought to recognize that, own it for a start, and take the matter further. Identify the issue. What is, why are you not convinced? What are you not convinced of? Are you unsure that Jesus was raised from the dead, really? And one day, and his Lord, is it that you are not convinced that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the secrets of all by Jesus Christ? Is it that you don't really believe that to know God as Father through Jesus Christ is the greatest good a person can have? Or maybe something else. It may be that simply you're struggling or in fact you've had the wrong steer theologically. I don't know. What I do know is do something about it. If you're unconvinced, don't drift. Talk to either of the Roger, Roger the Greater, Roger the Less, or to Andrew. I'll let you decide. And, and others, and that woman, who's, uh, staff, talk to a godly leader of this church or some other person, open your heart to them. They will, they will treat your, your comments with the greatest confidentiality and love and wisdom. And it may be the start of a very important further journey for you. 
What I'm saying is if you're unconvinced in the second category, don't sleep on it. Don't rest on it. Do something about it. Yes, you could be afraid. You could be unconvinced. But the fourth, the third reason why someone might not take the command to be a promoter of the gospel seriously is more serious than fear or doubt. It is simply that they may be too selfish, too self-focused as a person or as a church to genuinely give themselves to not seeking their own good but the good of many that they may be saved. And if that's the case, what is needed is repentance. And it's easy to slip, both personally and as a church like this. It's easy to slip this way. There's a natural bias. We're not fully made like Christ. There's a natural twist, like those blasted trolleys in supermarkets going off the way. There's a kind of bend in our lives. We turn inward. And tell me, even churches... Even churches. Let me tell you a secret. Churches may have the word everyone welcome on the notice board, but that doesn't always do it. Really. Um, Some churches, in fact, unwittingly slip to the case where they say things like, I don't want my church to be any bigger because then then I would lose my close friends. Churches can become clubs not churches, and not realise that. You see, and here the two Rogers and Andrew will agree with One thing about we ministers you need to know is we often get complaints. Not here at St Stephen's, of course, but in other lesser churches this happens. And they moan about people... I think if you don't own it, you don't moan it. That's one of my rules about church life. So people complain the sermon was too long, it was too short... I complained that this was wrong, that was wrong, do this, do that. And a lot of the complaints are important because you know, what make a better experience. The crash was too loud, the crash was too soft. But I tell you who doesn't complain. The insiders are the ones who complain. The outsiders never complain. They don't ring up Roger and say, listen, you've not evangelised me this week. What are you doing? Don't you care? They don't do that, right? They don't know they're being neglected by us. So they're happy about it. And therefore, if you just run your ministry, you'll find, if you just listen to where the pushing is, you'll slowly, as a church, you say in theory you believe in both, but in practice, you'll bend towards one. Right? It's very imp- therefore, you need to have an inbuilt trim tab, as it were, to keep turning you. Sure, those inside are very important. They're the people of God. But make sure you haven't turned inward. Churches, you see, can become a club where instead of being the church, you become a club for meeting on cold winter's evenings in dark ancient buildings uh, to sing a couple of songs, have a bit of coffee and hear a long talk. Club. I have no idea why you joined that club, come to think of it, but nonetheless, that could be a club. The club's for the members and we are the members. Now, I'm not against clubs. I belong to a number of other clubs. But if that's, what you, if that's what this has become, no longer the Church of Jesus Christ, I've got two things to say for you. One is, good luck to you. Would you mind leaving the building now because this building has been set aside on trust for the Church of Jesus Christ. This isn't a club room. So maybe find somewhere else to meet and sing your songs and have your supper. Right. 
Don't, so, and every church, every time you meet, the question is, is Christ really going to speak to us today? Is the Holy Spirit really going to work on us? Or are we just a club? Paul tells us not to be a club. And one way you're not a club is, you seek the good of others that they may be saved, not seeking to please them, which often means doing things that are uncomfortable for the club for the sake of those not here. And that's the challenge to you. Now I know you know this, for this church has, got, has been engaged in the past. I'm not rousing on you. I've not heard some bad thing and turned up to rouse on you. I want to remind you, nonetheless, of this crucial reality. For my, One of my jobs as bishop is to make sure there are less clubs and more churches in the region of South Sydney. Okay? The other day, I was involved in a consultation with a church. Last year this was, about a year ago where this American guru and a few others came along, we did a kind of health check. We talked to the minister on the Friday and a number of key lay people. On the Saturday we had a teaching session and a meeting. And then next Sunday morning we turned up to give the diagnosis. And we had five things that were great and five things that were not so great. And with, with prescription, what to do about them? You know, outside of you. And they could take it or leave it. We said, go away. You, you can forget what we're doing. Or you can say, well, but you can't just pick and choose. We said, Work out what you want to do. And it was quite stunning, actually. The first area of concern, one, inadequate outward focus, we said. This is a church in this region. The congregation needs a greater outward focus and has not been consistent in serving and reaching out to its local community. And the prescription, here's what we said there to do. The rector will call the congregation to a time of prayer on a Sunday morning during the worship service. This was a morning church we're talking to. Time will be spent asking God to provide the congregation with fresh eyes to see the community as God sees it. Spirits are needed people who desperately need the love of Jesus Christ. It was a highly mobile area as parts of the city are and they were quite discouraged about that and moaning about all the people coming and going. We said... Furthermore, you will not be discouraged by the highly mobile nature of the community, but see this as an opportunity to disciple people who will serve elsewhere. After the service, members of the congregation will walk throughout the suburb and pray that God will open the eyes and hearts to the message of salvation. All the Bible study groups will spend significant time praying that God will use this day to change hearts. The day will occur before by the August the 4th, 2013. And that's what they did, actually. That's just one example of taking Paul's words, not seeking my own good, but that of many that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ seriously. My challenge to you tonight is, will you? Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, who spoke the words of Christ through the Apostle, Speak, open our hearts again and afresh tonight to hear your word. And where appropriate, to repent as a church or repent as individuals, that we may truly imitate the apostle as he imitates Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.